We have a tradition that has lasted since 1873, and I'm very proud that we get to say that, which is, in my family, the firstborn son is always named Guy. Guy Warner, and the middle name is Dealer's Choice. So my son's name is Guy Micah Warner. My name is Guy Tyler Warner. My father's name was Guy Troy. His father is Guy Albert. He's the only one that actually goes by Guy. I guess we only have one of those at a time, not to cause confusion. But his father was Guy Leonard, and his father was Guy Charlie, who was born in 1873. And I like that. It's, it's a little different. It's our thing specifically. Catelyn, when we were first starting to date and she first met some of my great aunts, they sat her down and very kindly let her know that this is not a negotiable issue that this will continue. I have one of those families, and I'm just like the rest of them, and it's a, it's a lot of fun. Sort of like, uh, like George Foreman, although not as crazy. Did you know this? George Foreman has five sons, and George Edward Foreman has five sons who are also named George Edward Foreman. And he named them, you know, I was looking at the list, and it's George Jr., George III, George IV. But the way I was reading, it's like George II, George III, George IV, George V, and George VI. And he also has a daughter named Georgette. So there is that. But uh, it's, it's fascinating because we said I wanted, us all to, I wanted them all to feel like they're all part of this, and they all have my name. And I thought that was a little weird, but maybe no more weird than naming your first son Guy. But the firstborn son, there's something about that even to this day. And we, in America especially, we're, we're so independent. And you all know this country was founded by, by individuals. It was the youngest sons that left the old country to came and make a life for themselves or who then went west. And so over time, we, we, dealt, we did away with the whole idea of primogeniture, that the firstborn son gets everything. But in ancient times, as you all know, the firstborn son was a position of privilege and love and responsibility. And in a lot of ways, very appropriate tradition because it celebrates family. It celebrates having a, a child with your wife. So in that way, it celebrates marriage. It celebrates the fulfillment of what the Lord has told us to do. And, you know, even though we've lost some of that heritage, I think we understand it. There's something special about holding your first child, isn't there? And dads especially, there's something special about holding your first son. And there's just something that happens to you when, when that happens. And although you love all of your children, you, all, you love all your children differently. And there's a certain love that goes for the firstborn son. And in the Bible, the image of the firstborn is used many different ways to depict the love of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God. We're going to see all of those today. And this is a weird passage of the Bible. If there's one passage in Exodus that makes you tilt your head and say, what is going on here? It's this one. But I think when we understand the importance of a firstborn son, and you see how that theme goes all the way through these verses today, it helps to unlock the meaning of this passage. And although it is an admittedly obscure meaning and an obscure passage, what we can learn from this is how you treat God's people will invoke the intervention of God because God sees his people as his children, as his firstborn son. So for good or for evil, how you treat God's people will attract God's attention. We're also going to see that if you try to walk in God's calling without tending to your own self and your own family, you are in serious trouble and you are mistaken to think that God will give you a pass. And lastly, we're going to talk about the Lord's firstborn son, Jesus Christ himself, and how he fulfills all of these pictures that the Bible gives us. So let's begin by, we'll go about a paragraph or two at a time here, and we'll start with verses 18 down to verse 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. A little different from the last father-in-law that we had. Remember Laban? He just says, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All right. So Moses returns from the burning bush and asks leave of Jethro to return home. And this first verse, of course, just helps move the story along, but already we're seeing the picture of a good son and a good father. This section is all about fathers and sons, and this is the theme that runs through here, and actually through the whole book of Exodus. But Moses is being a good father, seeking the permission of, or a good son, seeking the permission of his father-in-law, and Jethro is being a good father. He's not holding on longer than he should to his, his son and his daughter and his grandchildren as well. So this is an important theme that we're going to see. It's going to be immediately contrasted with Pharaoh and unfortunately Moses himself. Now time is indefinite here where it says in in verse 19, the Lord said to Moses. You could also translate that the Lord had said to Moses. So it could be recapping what had been done at the burning bush. But either way, the point is that it is safe for Moses to return now. Whoever had a claim probably against his life for killing that Egyptian, whatever politicians were trying to get rid of him, that Pharaoh we know had died, and it was safe for him to return. And he takes his wife, and it says his sons, plural. We've only met one son so far, and that was Gershom, where it says the Lord has made me a stranger, right, in a strange land. But we know from chapter 18, verse 4, he had at least one other son whose name was Eliezer. We haven't gotten his name yet, but he's here just by the fact that it's referred to as sons, plural. And the staff of God. So now we're calling it the staff of God. It's not just Moses' shepherd's crook any longer. And along the way, they've already left, but this is a long journey. You know, they're, they're having to cross the Sinai Desert. And God reminds him of everything he said, and he adds a, a little detail here when he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this, of course, is a point of great controversy, and we're not going to talk about that really tonight. You can look at Romans 9 for a little extra info here, because, of course, we don't like the idea of God doing anything to anybody's heart, because we think that's not fair. Paul would then say, well, who are you to say God's not fair? You're a sinner. But uh, there was another author I read, and I loved the very pithy way he put it. He says, Pharaoh's heart was plenty hard. It wasn't like he needed God's help. He had enslaved a whole nation of people. But we'll get back to that point at some other time. Just it's important to know that it's there and and we'll refer back to it. I guess what we could take away tonight is you don't want to take too much what happens out of God's hand in order to make yourself feel better. But you can go the opposite direction too. Now in verse 22, this is where we're going to start to focus now. God claims Israel as his firstborn son. And he invokes the right of a father to demand their release. This really feels very Semitic, doesn't it? Very Arabian, we might think, of that culture, where the father will show up and say, this is my son, and I demand him back because that's my son. And our culture today would be like, I don't care if it's your son. He did it, and he's got to pay for it. But back then, family ties meant something. Being a, a father and a grandfather gave you social status. And the Lord comes in, and he says, you have my son, and I want him back. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. This is, if I'm not mistaken, the first place in the Bible where we start to view God as the Father. We as Christians use Trinitarian language all the time and call him the Father. We say, dear Heavenly Father, Father God, when we pray, right? Jesus called God his Father. And that's where we pattern a lot of that language off of. But this was in the Bible long before Jesus, of course. God calls himself as Israel's Father. Hosea chapter 11 gave us a, a wonderful picture of this here, and it's, it's visual and it's wonderful, especially if you've had children. Hosea 11, I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 3. The Lord said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So right there, that Hosea 11.1 1 is calling back to this verse here, where God told Pharaoh, Israel is my son, and I'm calling them out. Hosea 11.3 continues, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
Now that passage in Hosea is a very tragic passage and is talking about how Israel was a rebellious son as they grew older. But I love those tender verses. He says, I taught Israel to walk. I took them up by their arms. You've done that with a little kid before, haven't you? When they're just starting to walk and you you let them grab your finger like this and you kind of let them try to take those steps and they kind of stomp with one foot at a time. And it's, it's such a precious thing to do, teaching a little kid to walk. Even if it's not your, your child, it's a fun thing to do. And watch them discover the world and they can barely, you know, keep themselves up and their feet are all mismatched and they've still kind of got that, the baby proportions. So, you know, the, the stomach and the butt are all still real big so they can't quite get, get up. And that, that's such a tender thing and you remember that. And, you know, your parents maybe said to you, I taught you to walk right there. That's what, and you go, Mom, you know, Dad. or But you, we say the same thing to our kids, too, because it's such a tender thing. And this is how the Lord talks about Israel in the book of Hosea. And it comes right back here. So by saying, that's my son, let him go, implied in that is, that's my boy. I held him when he was little. I helped him when he cried. I picked up his arms and taught him how to walk. You don't get to do that to my kid. That's how God views Israel, his son. And now Israel has a unique relationship to God, but we also know that God is the father of us all, isn't he? Ephesians chapter 3, in case you needed convincing, Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And if you know, in Ephesians, he's talking a lot about how the Jews and Gentiles have been made one. So the Jews viewed calling God Father as a Jewish prerogative. But Paul goes right against that in verse 15. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is the Father of us all. Those who are children of God are those who obey him. Those who look to him. And and God desires to rescue us all. We're going to return to this point. But there is an important thing to see here. We, we don't just get to say, oh yes, I'm a child of God. We're all children of God, right? You can't say that any of God's children are, are separated from him, you know. Well, some of us are prodigal sons of God. Because look what he says. Set them free that he may serve me, says the Lord. This is an important point to remember because we try to use the book of Exodus as a template of liberation, some say. And I'm fine with that, as long as we recognize that it is not just liberation from oppression, it is liberation from oppression to obedience. He's leading you out of slavery into slavery. Well, I don't don't want to be a slave. Well, Romans 6 says you're going to be a slave of something. You're going to be a slave of sin, or you can be a slave of righteousness. That is to be a slave of God. But Jesus told us, right, in Matthew, he said, but don't worry, my yoke is easy. My burdens are light. My commands are not burdensome. But the Lord knows what's best for us. Up till now, they'd been serving Pharaoh. God's children, his son, had been serving Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had oppressed them with terrible toil. He had not been a good steward of the responsibility given to him. And God had even allowed successive Pharaohs the opportunity to correct what had been done before them. But you know as well as I do that when something gets embedded in a society, it gets harder and harder to eradicate it the longer it goes on, right? And and you can see this even in early American history that, you know, we had president after president who disapproved of slavery but didn't do anything about it. And now, after all this time, we go, well, that's nice to say, but you didn't change anything. And so we, of course, I think appropriately, look disfavorably upon them. And in fact, Pharaoh not only had abused God's firstborn son, he had advocated and commanded the killing of many actual firstborn sons through his his forced abortion policy. He told the midwives, if you see a little boy being born, I want you to kill the baby. And they refused to do that, of course. So then he sent his soldiers out to find all the little babies, all the little baby boys, and throw them into the Nile River. So can you see why the issue of the firstborn son becomes relevant here? This is going to chase us all the way through the book of Exodus to the end. In fact, God's given us foreshadowing of it right here. Pharaoh, who executed all these little sons, God comes up and says, those are my sons, and you don't get to treat them like this anymore. Can you see the Lord stepping in like a a dad coming in when, when somebody hasn't been treating your son right? It's easy to push around somebody's kid, but it's different when dad shows up. And the Lord is not going to allow the oppression of his son to go unpunished because he's a good father. 
And God threatens Pharaoh, says, if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. We say, that sounds harsh. Let me tell you just briefly, when we talk about justice, that's justice. Justice is a harsh thing. We should be careful before we start shouting for it because it's a very hard thing. And we know that that's exactly what's going to happen to Pharaoh, that he's going to lose his firstborn son just as so many firstborn Israelite sons had been killed. That's justice. The best thing for God's firstborn was for him to come and set them free so that they could serve him. Free from affliction, free from slavery. I don't want to be a slave of God. Well, being a slave of God means being in the promised land in a land full of milk and honey. And you've got to obey a bunch of laws that are actually going to be good for you and make things better for you. But sometimes as people, we'd rather, we'd rather be miserable and have our own way than to submit to God and have everything we could ever want. And the Lord <laughs> threatens those who treat his firstborn poorly. And we can hold on to that as Christians, can't we? That as we're mistreated and as we're insulted, as we're reviled, the book of Revelation shows the martyrs crying out to the Lord. Their blood is under the altar. They're saying, Lord, how long until you avenge us? And the Lord says, just a little while longer. There's a few more people I want to save. But the Lord remembers, and he, the rest of that book is him pouring out that judgment. So, this is the idea. Israel is the firstborn of the Lord, and God's coming to get him, and he's going to judge Pharaoh's firstborn son for that. You have to know that. You can't just breeze through those verses like I typically have done, because those verses set the stage for this next very weird story, and it helps us interpret it. Verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way... The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. You don't see that story in any of the movies, do you? <laughs> they don't have the story of the circumcision of the son of Moses. And I'll say, this is perhaps the strangest story in the book of Exodus. And it is a little confusing. And not just, if you read that story and you're confused, you're not alone. Uh, the, the scholars and the theologians are confused too. And it's not, obvious apparent, it's not obvious right away what's going on here, although I think we can puzzle it out. Let's look at a few things here. In verse 24, the ESV translates this properly. And you all ought to know this, that Many times, the English is translated in order to help lend understanding. So it'll translate it with words that maybe are not exactly what the language says, but, but communicate the sense better. And that is a very good thing. I'm a big fan of that. I love, for example, reading the New Living Translation because it makes Isaiah that much more easy to follow. But the danger of that is that you can start to make something that is ambiguous in the Hebrew or the Greek, the original written language, seem certain in the English, and that, that is the case here. In verse 24, it says, At a lodging place on the way, probably an oasis or something like that, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Many other translations have the Lord him and met him and sought to put Moses to death. The word Moses is not in the Hebrew there. Sought to put him to death. The ESV gets this right. But they get verse 25 wrong. Verse 25 says, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. You can see the footnote, perhaps, and in most of the other translations have this too. It doesn't say Moses. The word Moshe is not in Hebrew. It says, she took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched his feet with it. Now, that could be Moses, but it doesn't say Moses. Do you understand the difference? We've got to know this. Also, some translations have she threw the foreskin or cast the foreskin at Moses' feet. does not say throw, does not say cast. It says touched. So that would be what's called an interpretive translation to try to paint a picture, but that's not what it says. And then in verse 25 and 26, where she says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then a bridegroom of blood again in verse 26. That is the literal translation. However, this is very, very interesting. Because the word for bridegroom, well, I'll get to that in a second. I also want to mention in verse 26 when it says, so he let him alone. Some translations have, so Moses left him alone. Or God left Moses alone. It says he and him. 
I'm trying to draw this out because I have always read this, and I may have even preached this, that this was an indictment of Zipporah here. I've heard it taught, and godly men have taught, nobody is in sin for this, but heard it taught that Moses had not circumcised his son because Zipporah was a Midianite, and she was opposed to that. And so when they tried to go home, God was going to judge their son, and so she was forced to circumcise this son, and you're a bloody husband, as some of the other ones say, and that she was revolted by the idea of circumcision, and that's why she separated from Moses, and there was a breach between the two of them. I actually think the opposite is what's being taught here. So let's just work through this here. So on the way, they stop, and God threatens him somehow. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. It does not give us a name. It just says him and him. And I've always read this as Moses, and some translations even put Moses. But I think it's pretty clear in this story that this is actually the son of Moses that is in danger. It could be either way because it just says him, so I don't, I don't want to be definitive either. But I think it's pretty clear what's happening is that the son is the one who is being put to death. Because the question comes in your mind, why did God just raise Moses up to do this amazing thing, call him up, tell him what he's going to do, and then send him out, and then now he's going to try to kill him? Now, it could be, but it seems more likely to me that this is talking about the son of Moses here. I think it makes the story read a little better. Perhaps Eliezer, as the younger son, was too young to be circumcised before they left. We know Moses was an old man, but the kids certainly read like young children in in these stories. They're always with their mother, which would not be the case if they were grown. And we don't know what it was, if it was him or if it was Gershom. It could very well have been Moses. But somebody was being hunted down by the Lord. And it doesn't say what this was. Maybe they got really sick. Maybe it could have been something like when Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing there. But somehow they knew it was from the Lord, that somebody was about to die, probably one of their sons. I'm inclined to think Eliezer here. And they knew it was God. So Zipporah steps in and circumcises the child. And by saying, touched his feet with it, it's, it's more likely that it's not that she was throwing it away, but that this was actually part of the ritual. We're going to see this in other parts of Leviticus and Numbers, for example, that the blood would be sprinkled on the foot. This is with Aaron's priesthood and things like that. So it it could be this, as opposed to some sort of throwing this thing away, it could be this was exactly what they were doing here. And this is the translation of bridegroom of blood that, that really did it for me anyway. In the Bible, whenever time you have the word damim, which is the plural word for blood, the word for blood in Hebrew is dam, you make it plural, it's damim, Anytime you have something of blood, it's talking about murder most of the time. Like if you are a this of blood, you are a man of blood, or this is a city of blood, it would say. It's it's calling out the city for murder. So this is, it's very unlikely that this is just, you maybe do this bloody thing. This This is a very violent imagery. Or... The other way that phrase is used by adding the word damim to a noun, I'm not going to break down all the grammar, but in this construction, it's referring to ritual blood. When they were using, for example, the blood of the lamb to cleanse or to sanctify something, it would be called the whatever of blood. So if we, the the word used here for blood can either refer to a ritual use of blood or to murder. And I think in this scenario, we're not really looking at murder so much as we are at some sort of ceremony involving blood, which is circumcision. It says it in verse 26. This was because of the circumcision. Well, what about bridegroom? Well, here's the thing. The word bridegroom there is chatan, and it can be translated five or six different ways because it refers in general to a male relative of some kind. And in fact, one of the most common uses of this is son-in-law. Now we say, well, there's no son-in-law in this story. Well, consider this. Not so much son-in-law as in the son of my daughter, but consider what she's saying here. If we try to read this positively, don't think of her screaming this. <laughs> think of her saying, you are now a son of blood to me. Because we're not talking about son as in a biologically born son, but if we're talking about you are now one of the people because you've been circumcised. You're now, you are now, because of your circumcision, a son of blood to me. And it uses the phrase son-in-law because it's talking about a relationship that is different than just straight-up biology. My opinion, that makes a lot more sense here. 
Now, what is going on is that they leave. Let's, let's say, for whatever reason, the youngest son has not been circumcised. And maybe they had a conversation about it before they left. Ought we to do this? And Moses, now let's get on the way. Because the Midianites circumcised their children too. Which kind of pokes a hole in that whole theory, in my opinion. Because the Midianites and all, all the descendants of Abraham and all those Semitic tribes, even down into Arabian tribes, also circumcised their children. The Egyptians would engage in a partial circumcision as well. This is not unique to Israel. But for whatever reason, this hasn't been done, which is why perhaps he was very young at this point. They go to leave, and the uncircumcised child gets very, very sick. Like suddenly, out of the blue. Maybe it was boils, maybe something like Job. And they know it's from the Lord. You know how the Holy Spirit sends conviction upon you sometime, and they know why. And Zipporah knows why. And so she goes in, circumcises this child. Now you are a son to me. Now you are a son of the of circumcision to me. This is, I think, in any case, why she and her sons had to return and meet up with Moses later in chapter 18, because if one of their children was circumcised, they can't continue on this journey, especially if the child was older than an infant. Can you see there's a lot of uncertainty in this, in this passage? Uh, you know, who got sick? Was, was God trying to kill Moses, or was he trying to kill one of the sons? All right? And then, where did they throw the foreskin? At Moses' feet or at the son's feet? And was it thrown or was it touched? And did she say bridegroom or did she say son-in-law? And is it talking about the blood of some murder of some kind or this, some, this is just part of the ritual, what they said? Are we supposed to look favorably upon Zipporah in this story or unfavorably? I've laid out kind of what I think is the best way to read this. I think it just fits the context an awful lot more. But whatever the case, God was going to judge Moses for failing to circumcise his son. That's the obvious truth here. Whether it was Moses himself, or this was his son. And I think, can can you see how we just read about the Lord taking away Pharaoh's son for failing to take care of his son? I think thematically, you're, you're, you're seeing Moses as an actual parallel of Pharaoh. He hasn't quite got there yet. I'm going to take away your son. And so Zipporah steps in. Have you seen how women in the early part of Exodus are like the heroes or the heroines, like in every one of the stories? There's, first there was the midwives, and then there was Miriam and Yochaved, Moses' mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter, and then now Zipporah is stepping in and saving Moses' bacon. Either way, she's stepping in and saving the day, whether she wanted to or not. I think she was. But the point of the story is God was going to judge Moses for failing to circumcise his son. God had established circumcision with Abraham in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, 14, he said, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. And by failing to circumcise his son, Moses had mistreated his son and was about to lose him one way or another, however you read this passage, exactly as Pharaoh had been warned. I think you're supposed to read about that and then immediately here's Moses about to lose his own son. Right now, Moses is in the all-important stage of the journey. He's been into the wilderness. He's encountered God. He's got his mission. And now he turns to go back. You've always got to go back. We've talked about that. But because he had not done all that he was supposed to do, because he had not learned the lesson he was supposed to learn in the wilderness, that failure was chasing him down. Do you remember this? We talked about this with Jacob. Because Moses had not fully identified himself and his family with the people of God, God was not going to let him off the hook for this. I'm sending you back not to be an Egyptian, not to be a Midianite, but to be a Hebrew and the leader of the Hebrews and the lawgiver of the Hebrews. And you haven't even circumcised your own son, Moses? I love the the stories of, of King Arthur and his knights. The Once and Future King is one of my favorite books. It's where the sword and the stone uh, story comes from. And one of the fascinating things to me is that as the knights were looking for the Holy Grail in the story, it's not in your Bible, it's just, it's a story, right? There's no Holy Grail in the Bible. You've read it, you know it's not there. But they're looking for it. And I find it fascinating that every time they failed one of the temptations that came at them, they were required to go to confession and make it right spiritually. And it's, of course, this is Middle Ages, right? This is written in a Catholic context. So, but I love the picture there, which is if you're trying to do God's work and you're going to sin, 
you've got to go and get it right with God and not think you can just keep going. You've got to make it right. You've got to repent and make it right. Not just say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, but to actually correct it and move forward. And then you can progress. Because in the Bible, when the folks that God is using try to leave prematurely or try to run away without doing what they're supposed to do, it chases them. It follows them. We saw this most clearly with Jacob, didn't we? Jacob had been sent out to the wilderness because he had lied to his brother. And we we see that thematically. God is trying to teach Jacob through Laban what he could become if he doesn't get his sneakiness under control. And Jacob has been abused by Laban and his, his lies and his manipulation. And so he decides to go home. Great. But how does he leave? He sneaks away in the dead of night where Laban is off shearing his sheep. And then Laban gets a a posse together and chases him down. And until Jacob can finally speak forthrightly to Laban and stop messing around and stop knuckling under to people that try to pressure him, but to become the man of God that can wrestle with God and men and prevail, he wasn't going to get home. What about Abraham almost losing his wife? Twice. God had called him to the promised land. But he gets afraid and he goes first to Abimelech or first to Egypt and then to Abimelech in the Philistine city-states. And is that your wife? No, that's my sister. And there's his wife taken away, jeopardizing what God had promised him, which was a child, by giving his wife to another man. What about Elijah? Elijah had this amazing statement of faith. It's not going to rain except at my word. And what does God do? God takes him into the wilderness and starts to teach him faith. You're going to be fed through the ravens. And you're going to get, fed, get water from the brook. Brook dries up. God says, I want you to go up into Sidon, where Jezebel was from. And I want you to live at this widow's house. And you're going to raise her son from the dead. You're going to make the oil last forever. You're going to learn faith. You're going to call down fire from heaven. Faith. But then Jezebel comes to him and says, I'm going to have you dead by the end of the day. And Elijah runs back to the wilderness crying, afraid, scared to death. He wasn't able to really leave the wilderness because he hadn't learned the lesson. Talking about leaving the wilderness, what about the children of Israel? God had delivered them through one body of water, the Red Sea, but they were scared to cross the Jordan River because of what was on the other side. So they were stuck in the wilderness. Or Peter. (laughs) Peter had been given a new name by Jesus Christ. You've been given a new position, a relationship with Jesus himself. Lord, all these other people could deny you, but I'm ready to go to prison and to death with you. And then a little girl asks him, aren't you one of his disciples? Never heard of that man before. Three times, cussing people out, it says, with an oath. Peter swore he had never heard of him before. If you, you can think you know what you're supposed to be. They all did. Every one of them knew what they were supposed to be. But they had not learned yet. And Moses knew that he was supposed to go and be the leader of his people, but he had not fully identified with those people by circumcising his own child. If you pursue your calling in hypocrisy, you will fail before you ever get started. I'm going to say that again. If you pursue your calling in hypocrisy, you will fail before you even get started. You're going to try and be a leader. And you're like Moses, and you can't even lead your own family. Especially true as it relates to family. You cannot neglect them to do God's work. So many guys try that. Marriage can wait. My kids can wait. But i got to do this ministry. Sometimes I wonder why some of these pastors don't just go single into the ministry if they're going to neglect their family as they do it. The rule that says you have to be married as as a pastor. Paul wasn't. Jesus wasn't. John the Baptist wasn't. But we do that. In fact, 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5, one of the qualifications of an elder or leader in the church, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You can't keep your own family together. How are you going to come in and try to lead God's house? If you can't lead your own bride, how are you going to come in and try to lead God's bride? The number of guys that, great speakers, great administrators, all kinds of gifts, but their marriage is, is, a, is a wreck because they have everybody's respect and they can lead everybody else effectively except their own wife. 
She doesn't listen, won't, won't pay attention, does her own thing, doesn't think very much of him. Says, well, that's her fault, not his. Well, of course, but we're not talking about that right now. Do you, have you done what is necessary to take leadership in your family, men? Moses had not. He failed to make the ultimate identification with God's people, and God was not pleased. How do you think it's going to go? He, that, remember the issue with Moses last time? Who made you a prince over us? Pharaoh's child going to come and act like he knows what it's like to be one of us? He's going to come back. Oh, now he's been in the wilderness for 40 years, but then they say, your son's not even circumcised. You're still acting like an Egyptian, Moses. And God's like, I'm not going to let you play this game. But it was Zipporah, his wife, who stepped in to save her husband and her son. What, what kind of spiritual discernment must she have had? Apparently a little more than Moses did, or at least a little more courage than Moses did. She knew that this was her son, but really it was the Lord's son first. Exodus 13, verse 2, God is going to say this. He'll say, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. This was how it worked in Israel. Do you remember when Jesus was brought to the temple by his parents and they had to pay the sacrifice for Mary to be uh, considered clean under the law because she had had a child? And also for Jesus. They had to pay the redemption cost. Why? Because every firstborn child was dedicated to the Lord and you had to come and pay a special sum of money or some sacrifice for your firstborn son because symbolically that child was the Lord's. And if you wanted him back, you had to pay. And in fact, we're going to read that the Levites, God said, instead of taking all your firstborn, I'm just going to use the Levites. But you still have to pay the redemption price. And same thing even for the livestock that they had. Because our children are not ours. And the Lord is going to insist that we train them up well in his admonition. And he's not going to suffer us to mistreat our firstborn children either. Oh, the Lord's on my team. But you need to remember that just as you sometimes are under the power of somebody and you cry out for God to help you, who are you in authority over? You say, oh God, all the people above me, they're, they're oppressing me. And the Lord's like, all right, but you've got kids. You've got employees. You've got people in your church. Are you oppressing them? Are you doing wrong by them? Because I see that too. Don't think that you are exempt from the righteous judgment I'm bringing upon Pharaoh, Moses is important to know. Well, verse 27 through 31, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Moses is on his own now. It doesn't say it in this passage, but we know that Zipporah will go home at this point and they'll hook up later after the Exodus has taken place. A lot of the movies have them together in the land of Egypt. That's not what the Bible says. And he meets up with Aaron at Mount Sinai, as God had promised, which is, by the way, one of the reasons we believe that Mount Sinai would be between the promised land and Egypt. There are those that want to put it other places, but if Moses is traveling towards Egypt and meets up with Aaron along the way, that just makes sense. But we'll get to that at another time. just want to call it out now. They return to Egypt. Aaron speaks the words. Remember, Aaron is going to be the one to speak for Moses. It also says that he, that is Aaron, did the signs. So as you know, the, the Lord was said to Moses, I will be God to you, and you will be the prophet to the people. But you will be like God to Aaron, and he will be the prophet to the people as well. So this shouldn't cause us to have any pause that Aaron performed these, these signs. And they come back. And the people receive it. They're ready this time. Moses is probably very relieved. I've heard from the Lord. And this is why one reason we believe Aaron had some sort of standing among the people. 
He was called the Levite, remember, as in like a title, as the chief of the Levites, perhaps. And he comes back, and I've got Moses with me, and look, this staff can turn into a snake, and the hand will become leprous. And they believed God has visited our people again. It's been 400 years, and they rejoiced. And this is where the typology becomes very clear. Typology is is the study of symbol, how something in the Old Testament prefigures something that happened later. Out of the wilderness comes God's messenger to liberate the people from their slavery. Who does that sound like? Sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, tempted by the devil for 40 days, not 40 years like Moses, 40 days, comes back and begins to speak what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was like Moses in many ways. And you know, Jesus Christ is the preeminent firstborn that the Bible talks about. We've already read from Hosea chapter 11, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Remember the story of toddling Israel along like a little baby? It said, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, when Jesus comes back from Egypt after Herod had tried to kill all the babies, another big picture, do you see that? It says, this was to fulfill what was written in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea, or I should say Matthew, deliberately connects Jesus to what was happening with Moses and the land of Israel. That just as Moses had barely escaped almost being killed by the king, Jesus barely escaped being killed by the king. And just as the Son of God, Israel, came out of Egypt into the promised land, so the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came out of Egypt into the promised land. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, there's going to be a dream that comes to Joseph, Jesus' father, and he says, it's safe to return home now. Those who sought the life of your son are dead. And that's exactly what we saw the Lord said to Moses in this chapter, isn't it? Those who sought your life are dead. So Jesus... Is, is, is basically the fulfillment of who Moses was. And Matthew draws those parallels out very clearly. Jesus Christ is the firstborn Son of God, just as Israel was His firstborn. And we said this at the beginning. That makes Him in a position of love, of privilege, and responsibility. The Father loves the Son. There is that wonderful Trinitarian love that is between the two of them. There's privilege. There's status associated with that. He is the Son of God. Remember, he said, do you not think I could call down 12 legions of angels if I wanted to? And there's also responsibility to do everything that his Father tells him to do. Colossians 1 verse 15 calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. That is, Jesus was there before all creation. He was not created himself. In fact, the Bible will say Jesus created the world. It's not so much speaking of... of, you know, first and then second. It's, it's in preeminent, above all creation, the one that is, has that status that no one else has. And in Revelation 1 verse 5, he's called the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead, was he not? There are other people that had been resurrected before, but they all died again. I wonder what that was like, anticipating death after having already died. But Jesus stayed alive the firstborn from the dead. And there's one more. Romans 8.29 calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is God's firstborn son, but he has brothers. Jesus has many brothers. You ever think about that? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but that only begotten son has brothers. Might add, and sisters. Who's that? Well, that's you and me. The firstborn among many brothers, God is going to raise up from the dead into glory, first his son, but after that, all the rest of his people. Have you ever thought about calling Jesus your brother? Well, if God the Father is his father and God the Father is your father, what does that make you? A brother of Jesus Christ or a sister of Jesus Christ. He came into the world and the firstborn son of God was afflicted by men. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was nailed to a cross. And just as the Lord told Pharaoh, as you have abused my son, I'm going to take away your son. The world deserved judgment. 
But Jesus is a better firstborn son because Jesus took that penalty willingly. And because he rose from the dead, he is able to deliver not just himself, but even the ones who crucified him. The Lord is doing a greater work than he did in Egypt because he's not just saving the oppressed. He's saving the oppressors too. Saving all of us together. Let me read you a passage from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And let me read this last verse, keeping in mind what we're reading in Exodus here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So just as the Lord sent Moses to go tell Pharaoh, these slaves are now my sons and you're going to let them go. The Lord came down and told Satan, these slaves are now my sons and you're going to let them go. God has made us sons and daughters through his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. Well, God only has the, the son, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the only begotten son of the father, but we are all the adopted sons and daughters of the father. We're adopted. We're brought into that same relationship, which means all that stuff that Jesus talks about, his relationship with his father is now true of you. Well, no, no, Jesus is still special. Well, of course he is. But the, what did he say? We are heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ inherits, you also inherit. Jesus said, you're going to sit with me on my throne one day. What's left, man? <laughs> you're going to sit with me on my throne? Partakers of the divine nature will see God as he is? Jesus went into the wilderness of death so that he could come out and then take us through it. Moses has gone into the wilderness and gone back so that he can take God's people through the wilderness themselves and bring them out. Just like Jesus went down into the grave and came out, he's going to go down into the grave and lead us out. Isn't that awesome? Sons and daughters of God, so that we could be set free to serve him just like they were set free to serve their Lord. We were bound up in slavery, bound up in the uncircumcision of our hearts, and God came in and said, I'm going to change your whole status. Colossians 2 verse 11 says, In him you were circumcised, just like the Lord had Moses' son be circumcised before he completed that work, so that he might be part of the people of God. He says, You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision symbolized the cutting off of the flesh. And in the same way, your flesh, which drives you to sin, corrupted by all that we have ever done, all that came through our father Adam, the Lord says, I've cut that away in Jesus Christ. That's no longer part of the, of the equation when I evaluate your life. I'm just looking at your faith now. We were doomed because of our father, Adam, but the last Adam stepped in and saved us all. Isn't that awesome? Can somebody say hallelujah or something? That is, that is so amazing to me. Because what was unique to Israel is now true of all people. That God is our father and he's liberated us from slavery. And that what was true of Christ is now true of those who are in Christ. You are not lost. You're found. You're not an orphan, you are welcome in God's house as his son and heir. And you think, well, if I'm adopted, I, I'm not quite to the level of God's own son. What do you think of a person who does that? This is my son, and these are my adopted children. They walk four steps behind us so that everybody knows. You'd be like, what's wrong with you? What do you even bother to adopt that kid for if you're not going to treat him right? Is our heavenly father not better than that? Co-heirs with Christ. You are welcome in God's house as his son, his daughter, to sit at his banqueting table, to call him Abba, Father. Oh, Father sounds very official, but Abba was a personal term. You call your, I don't know what you call your dad, Dad, Pop, Papa, Daddy when you were little. It's a personal term between you and God. Therefore, those three things that qualify a firstborn son apply to you too. You are loved. God loves you so much, 
you don't even love yourself that much. Because you think about your, God could never accept me. God could never love me. I'm too broken. I'm damaged goods. God might be able to get me back to accept it, but I'm never going to be where he intended. God looks at you and he loves you so much. He says, I'll take nails through the hands for you. I'll suffocate and bleed out for you. I'll let them whip me in public and put a crown of thorns on my head and mock at me while I'm hanging naked for all the world to see for you. And as you swing the hammer, I'll say, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. You are loved with an everlasting love. Number two, you are privileged. You have all the blessings of the Son of the Most High. Everybody wants to talk about privilege today, right? Who's got privilege? Rich people have privilege. White people have privilege. Men have privilege, whatever. You have privilege because you are the Son of the Most High God, the daughter of the Most High God. You are the prince and princess in this place. And that what God has given you is so great, the riches of his glory, the overflowing abundance in Christ, the rivers of living water of the spirit coming out of your heart, the ability to come to God and pray and expect an answer from God when you pray. Provision and healing and peace and joy. These aren't tangible things, but there are people that have everything they could ever want that would trade all that for a little bit of joy. And you've already got that because you are privileged as the son of the most high. And you will be glorified and crowned and set alongside your savior, Jesus Christ, someday, forever and ever. And third, you are responsible. You are a prince or a princess, but you have responsibility to live up to your calling, to lead well as a son or daughter of God. You have been set free to serve the Lord. You don't just get to strut around and say, I'm God's son, aren't I wonderful? The Lord wants to train you up on what it means to be a son or daughter of God. He's got works for you to walk in. He wants you to find out that serving him as his slave and yet his son is better than being free indeed and yet a slave to sin. It's better. There's a responsibility. You are loved, you are privileged, and you have a responsibility, but it's a blessed one. Life without responsibility isn't worth living anyway, is it? Amen. All these people that have everything they could ever want and, and, and they kill themselves at age 20. Because there's nothing to live for. There's no purpose. There's no anything. But God gives us that too. Amen. He gives us purpose. So don't try to escape the wilderness without letting yourself be changed. It's time to identify with the people of God and not try to have it both ways. Because that compromise will kill you dead if you're not careful. It'll follow you. I'm going to have it this way, but I'm also going to serve Jesus Christ. Those are the kind of people that say, I don't get anything out of the Bible. Because you haven't committed you're not all in. Amen. Well, why doesn't God let me do it halfway? It's like, this is God we're talking about. You wouldn't even ask your boss for that. Amen. Is it okay if I, if I spend all day on Facebook while I try to work too? I, I can divide my time. What your boss say? No, you can't. Get back to work. We come to God and say, Lord, I, I want to do as much of these old sins as I used to, as I can, but still get into heaven. What, what's the list of the, the minimum I need to do in order to be saved? God goes, get out of here. We'll talk about this later. Right? Dads, would you let your son get away with that? Why is he going to let you get away with that? But if you let the Lord set you free, he'll conquer every foe. He'll break down every barrier. He'll adopt you as his son. Because Jesus said in John 3 verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And this time when you're born, your birth certificate is going to say, son of God. Daughter of God. How wonderful is our Lord, our Father, our Heavenly Father. And if you don't know the Lord, if you say, well, I, I think I believe all this, but I don't know if I've experienced any of that, today could be your big birthday. Where you say, that's enough messing around in the wilderness. It's time to fully identify with God's people and come on home and live the life that he's planned for me.